We good? Great. All right. Good morning. We're, we are going to jump right in because I'm slightly nervous that I'm going to eclipse the record currently held by Becca Zinn for longest sermon in the <laughs> history of the church. But hopefully not. We'll see. You never know until you actually get into it. Um, yeah, so hold on to your coffee. Um, over the past few weeks leading up to Easter, we've been looking deeply at the mission of Jesus, which we're going to continue this morning, uh, particularly in Luke 4, 18 to 19, uh, which I'll, I'll read to you. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We've touched on many of those themes in the past few weeks. This week, we're going to focus on bringing good news to the poor. As we enter that topic, though, I want to acknowledge my limitations in speaking to this. And as, as some of you are probably assuming you're right, I have never been in a position that anyone would have described as poor. So let's, let's take this as an example. Let's think about the phrasing that Jesus uses, bring good news to the poor. Some of us this morning might be frustrated, and you might find yourself frustrated over the next half hour, that my perspective doesn't equitably or equally speak to the experience of people who have had this struggle. And in fact, I think identifying a whole group of people solely as the poor by their poverty could be alienating if you're someone who's had some of that struggle. And so I want to recognize that because you might consider that a struggle, but not like the defining piece of your identity. At the same time, for practical reasons, because the phrase people who are poor is a tongue twister, I'm going to stick with Jesus' phrasing of the poor, which is also a great opportunity to risk alienating those of you who think I'm not pushing this whole thing hard enough and not being aware enough of dynamics like that. And at the same time, spending the first three minutes talking about this is a great opportunity to alienate the rest of you who think that we're being ridiculous for pushing it this far. All of which is to say... This is a limitation we have this morning. You might end up legitimately frustrated as I struggle to speak on this issue as someone who has not had the experience of being poor. You may end up frustrated that you don't think I push the mission of Jesus hard enough or far enough for what's in the scripture we're going to look at this morning. Or you may end up frustrated that, we are, that I am pushing what I see Jesus saying in the scripture this morning too far. So hopefully somehow in the midst of all of that, we can hear the spirit and the voice of the living God this morning. Also true. <laughs> we'll see. So Jesus. Jesus says, bring good news to the poor. I want to start by, um, by giving you a little bit of the background of the why, why this has been important to me, and then we'll move from why as we get into the scripture I want to look at this morning into the how. I grew up in a really nice suburb in Atlanta, Georgia, famous recently for the burning down highway, um, but grew up near there, been paying a lot of attention to that this week. I went to a great school I knew a lot of really nice, good people. I did, I hope I did my fair share of some kind of nice community service. Left for college. Somehow I managed in my first semester, or my first year in college, to spend the first week of spring break in Dorchester, which is an under-resourced neighborhood on the south side of Boston. I have no recollection of what or if we did that week to be useful in that community while we were there, but we did two things that have, in retrospect, really shaped my life since then. The first thing we did is we spent every morning studying the book of Amos. Amos is a prophet in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. In Amos, God has a lot to say about the rich and their role and responsibilities related to poverty, a lot that I had never considered. I actually think it's amazing. I, I wouldn't have thought it at the time for reasons you'll see, but I thought it's amazing. You can grow up going to a nice church for your entire life and get to college and have no idea that God has a very pointed perspective 
on prioritizing good news for the poor. How does that happen? But it happens to a lot of us. It certainly happened to me. So through Amos, I, I had a realization that I had spent the whole first part of my life working to get to a certain place. And through Amos, realized that that place was not actually the destination that I wanted to be in. Or the phrasing we used, uh, or the, and the phrasing I think you hear often is like cli climbing the ladder. It's like you spend all this effort climbing the ladder only to realize that you put the ladder against the wrong wall. And that's what Amos left me thinking. I left that week convinced, um, as I am to this day. I, I, I still feel that I cannot, I literally still feel that I cannot escape what Amos says. And it's, that was like 2001. Um, just convinced that, that the nice values, the good charity of my isolated, socially Christian, middle-class experience to that point were almost exactly what God was challenging in the book of Amos. Amos was a huge part of that week and has been a huge part of my life since then. The second thing that we did that week was explore the neighborhood. So if you haven't made the assumption already, you can now make the realization that that week was the first time I spent more than a couple of hours in an urban neighborhood, right? So I grew up in Atlanta. You, you go downtown to go to a sporting event or something. I'd done some nice community service, some service projects. I had never probably spent more than a few hours in an urban neighborhood because that's not the kind of thing you did when you grew up um, in my community. So I found that week captivating. It was, I, I don't know how else to describe it except to say that it, was, it just felt suddenly so real. Uh, the image that comes to mind, I think, is from the book The Giver, where it's like the whole world is black and white, and then suddenly the little boy starts to see colors and see red. And I felt like I had that experience where my perspective had been so limited, and suddenly I was exposed to all these things that were so real. And, and some of them were really challenging things, and some of them were really great things. I loved the diversity, the culture, the languages. I had my first Vietnamese food in that neighborhood. Um, I don't idealize that neighborhood. It was also very challenging. I was drawn to the people that we connected with, even in a short time, drawn to the challenges that they faced, even as, as significant as those challenges were. Uh, the perspective that they had, the resilience they had, the disappointment they had, there was just so much reality there that I had been so separated from that I was drawn to it. Um, before that week in Dorchester, I had lived a nice, sheltered experience and never really thought about good news to the poor. I wasn't poor. I don't think I, I really knew personally, deeply, anyone who was. Uh, so I'm sure I had a ton of stereotypes and a lot of ignorance. But more than anything else, I had just never thought about it. It would have been like thinking, it would have been like thinking about whether something was good news for left-handed people as a right-handed person, right? I'm right-handed. I'll never think about it. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry about it. I just never do. I can walk into a classroom and all the desks can be right-handed desks and I just don't think about it. How did that happen? Who knows? Who cares? It's just all right-handed desks. Oh, well. Right? And that was, that was kind of my experience with thinking about good news to the poor. I just hadn't, it just uh, had not been in front of me. So that's the moment for me, or that's a moment for me of the why of all of this. Um, because of Amos, because of the experience in that community that really broke through, that I uh, realized that God and Jesus are so concerned with this priority of bringing good news to the poor. This morning, I really felt um, pressured in considering this, the words this week to think not just about the why of bringing good news to the poor, but the how. If Jesus is going to bring good news to the poor, it really should be good news, not like fake news or like nice-sounding news, but good news. And so if it's going to be good news, there has to be some how. Um, and I think when we, when we look at the news that we read recently, when you look at international news, national news, state news, Philly news, his, historic, history, there's just not a lot of good news to the poor. So I want to ask the question this morning, how can we follow Jesus' mission and bring good news to the poor? How? 
So for our scripture, we're going to look at a particular, practical, concrete example of how the followers of Jesus brought good news to the poor in their community, in their lifetime. And I'm hopeful that their example this morning will challenge us and probe us and ultimately heal us, free us, empower us to follow Jesus's mission in the way that they did. So uh, we're going to read two chunks of the beginning of Acts. Um, it'll be on the screen behind you. These are two descriptions of the community of the followers of Jesus right after Jesus' death and resurrection, as they're just getting started. In the second, end of the second chapter, Acts reads, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And the next chapter tells you some great stories about these signs and wonders and people adding to their number daily. And we get to the last part of chapter 4, which goes back into a description of this same community. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from, them, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is a really unique moment in the history of the followers of Jesus. I mean, how different in so many ways is this moment than what we think of when we think of church, right? I don't see us breaking bread together. Did I miss that? Is there food here somewhere? Right, there's just things that are different about this community. Every day, all the things, we'll get into the things that describe this community. It's, it's different than I think what we think of when we think of church. There are people who argue that this is how church always should be in every time and place, and that the followers of Jesus lost their way when they became institutionalized or a, a big deal, right, and a big group of people internationally. There are other people who argue that this is communist and was just for this moment but should have no bearing on our actions in following Jesus today, <laughs> right? Um, I think, I mean, I, this image of following Jesus is striking. It's challenging. It's thought-provoking. So it's my hope this morning we're going to draw on some of the characteristics that we see here to challenge and empower our own ability to bring good news to the poor without getting stuck in the question of exactly how much every community that follows Jesus should do things exactly like they do here. So the first characteristic we're going to look at that, I, that describes this, this community is the powerful spiritual experience that they're having together. The scripture tells us they were devoted to teachings about Jesus. They were devoted to prayer. Many wonders and signs were done. They praised God. They had glad and generous hearts. They had great power when they shared their story about Jesus, their testimony. Great grace was upon them all. So this isn't really unpacked in the parts that we're looking at. It doesn't tell us what this feels like or looks like. It's just kind of narrated as like a series of facts. These things are true about these communities. But when you read these, these facts and this experience, it's hard to imagine a deeper communal, group, spiritual experience. In whatever way we find our hearts or our, our inner self, our soul, drawn to a powerful spiritual experience with wonder, with joy, with devotion, spiritual power, this is it. 
This is the proverbial spiritual high point, the mountaintop experience, whatever. When you have those moments where you feel like every time you sit down to reflect and just open up your heart and your mind, God is right there with you, that's what this is. That's the first characteristic. The second one I want to look at is that these people have deeply shared unity. So it tells us all who believed were together every day. They spent much time together. They were of one heart and one soul. So in less words, this description basically says they were a giant group of soulmates. They're inseparable. How often do any of us feel like we're of one heart and soul with anyone, much less an entire group of people? So if the first characteristic reminds us of the mountaintop of spiritual experience, this reminds us, I think, of our very human longing for community, for family, for relationships, and for belonging. And I think these two initial characteristics are fundamental to us as people, to what drives, uh, to, what, to part of human nature, what drives our experience as humans. It's also really refreshing to see these two characteristics really deeply intertwined. I think we can all imagine a solitary guru monk figure who's on the top of some mountain somewhere having this great deep spiritual experience alone, entirely away from the world and all of its concerns. We can also maybe imagine a great, uh, a great family or a great sports team or a clique in school that is simply all about themselves. And without any sort of power of spirituality or mission, they're actually just really self-focused or self-centered. But when you put these two things together, you see a really powerful community that actually meets two of our deepest desires and is healthy. They enjoy the goodwill of all the people. I would be willing to bet that if most of us knew of a community that consistently experienced this type of spiritual power and this deep relational connection was healthy and well-regarded, like we would go join. That's probably why many of us are here this morning, is seeking these kinds of things. We would probably go now. We would probably apologize to folks here, say thank you to the worship team and other folks. See y'all later. Like, look what I've heard about. This is amazing. I'm going to join. So those are your first two characteristics. The third characteristic of this community is that they have entirely shared possessions. The scripture tells us they had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all. No one claimed private ownership of anything. Everything they owned was held in common. As a result, there was not a needy person among them. And so this is where we see the followers of Jesus bring good news to the poor. And I want to point out that this is, this is good news to individual people who are poor, who are in their community, that are being fed or housed as a part of this. But I think this is also a decent shot at a systemic statement about how to shape society to be good news for the poor as a whole. In nonprofit parlance, I think you could call this a proof of concept or a scalable best practice. That's the world I live in, right? Um, this is both, but my point is, this is both individual and systemic. And I think that's important when we consider what good news to the poor should look like and feel like. So it turns out that great spiritual experience, powerful spiritual experience, deeply shared community, deep relationships, these things have implications for our economics, for our property, for our stuff. We saw above how great spiritual experience and deep belonging are intertwined, and we see now when they are intertwined that they're intertwined with profound personal generosity and economic action, a very different economic system than what we are used to or perhaps comfortable with, right? So, so here's what I mean by perhaps being a little bit uncomfortable with the economics here. I picked this passage a few weeks ago, read through it, studied it, have been trying to wrap my hands around it. 
Um, I felt somewhere between really challenged and stressed by considering what it's saying. Uh, and then I sat down to write this part. I noticed in chapter 2, um, towards the end in verse 46, it says they broke bread in houses. And I thought, oh, what a relief. They aren't actually all that crazy or radical. They still have houses. They did not sell, they, maybe they just sold like that extra field they had outside the city that they don't need anymore. And they sold extra stuff that they had that they didn't really need, and, but, they, but they still have their houses, right? And so then you keep reading and you get in uh, chapter 4, verse 34, and it says very specifically, as many of them as owned lands or houses sold them. Okay, so never mind. Their economics are as radical as you could consider. They are, and they should be, I think, uncomfortable for most of us to consider. And this, I think, is where we see the, the priority of Jesus pressing into our spirits and challenging us. We crave deep spiritual experience. We crave a shared community of belonging. We even hope to bring good news to the poor. But as soon as we start to consider these extreme and extremely significant economic implications of how we see Jesus' followers doing that, we start to feel concerned, anxious, threatened, exhausted, overwhelmed, unsure, just not sure how to move forward. How do you make this? What does this look like? After the first two characteristics, we were ready to go join the community. And now maybe we want to ask questions like, is this really for everyone? Am I really supposed to be this radical? Does this really work? Can you do this in today's society? Is this really possible? I think those are fair questions, and I don't think I necessarily have answers to them. Um, I'd like to think that I, don't, that I just don't know how to do this today and that it should be different in some way in our society and, da -da 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 and I don't know how. Um, but I think part of the reality is also that, that I just don't have the courage to exactly try it or the faith. Um, and, and faith and courage are kind of the same thing in some ways. So, so the recognition of many moments, or at least where I have not fully answered Jesus' call in this place to bring good news to the poor, I do think we can see from this story a few encouragements that can help us or challenge us to seek a way forward. The first thing I want to point out is that we should not wait for, per, per, we should not wait for perfection or even wait for a socially just community. If you keep reading in the book of Acts, two chapters later in Acts 6, you'll see a really deep internal division identified in this community where they face a significant struggle between Jews in the group who grew up in Jewish culture and Jews in the group who grew up in majority or Greek culture. So it's like an, an interrelational a cultural dynamic challenge. All this is before the community realizes at all in any way that they should actually start following Jesus's challenge to welcome non-Jews into the community. So I point all of that out to say that while wow, this community was amazing, they were of one heart and mind, they had this powerful spiritual experience, they also aren't perfect. In no way, they're not perfectly just. So as we struggle in thinking about how to get started, I'm gonna start with this encouragement that we should get started without being perfect and not let perfect get in our way. We'll never be perfect on these fronts for most of us, I would, at least for myself, right? So that's first, don't wait for being perfect. Second, I wanna challenge us in seeing what we see here to really focus on building relationships across some of the normal divides that we see in our world and particularly across the divide of socioeconomics or resources. It's hard to imagine how to get from the relationships that we all have today to the kind of oneness described in this scripture. I, you almost don't know where to start. But I think we need to recognize the power of these kinds of relationships and the opportunity to get started somewhere. So, I wanna, so, so partially, I think we need to recognize that a lot of the systems and structures that exist in our world naturally create spaces where you only interact with people who are like you, 
who have the same kind of resources like you. It's actually really hard, and there are people who, um, who have tried to build socioeconomically diverse neighborhoods or blocks, and it's really hard. A lot of the diversity that I think we see is, is diversity that's, that's uh, part of the, the neighborhood moving from one place to another, but not because the neighborhood is stabilizing in a certain diverse way. So I want to recognize that this is hard, this is challenging, um, and that the systems and structures that exist in the world around us do not necessarily help us in this way. But let's think about it like this. Who are the people in your life that if they called you because they needed something, you would just automatically do whatever you could do to be helpful, naturally, without even thinking twice? Probably family, right? So uh, my brother recently got laid off from his job. And so as the family found out, like you don't think and analyze and try to decide like, am I helping this person in a way that's empowering them or enabling them? Am I, am I giving what I can without like overstretching myself? Or, like you just do what you can do. It's, it's almost simple and easy because you have the relationship and you know where they're coming from and you know what they need and you're already like plugged in deeply to that. My brother, by the way, just got a new job offer, which is wonderful, and we're all very excited not to leave you hanging on that. So this is great. Um, in, in the community that we're reading about here, there clearly started with both people who had a lot of property, like people like Barnabas, who's named in the story. And there are also, obviously, people in this community who started off with a lot of need, who are getting fed through this community, to be specific. What if we had relationships like we do with our families with people who had those different levels of resources in our community? What if we had that kind of depth with both Barnabas and the person who entered this community without having had anything to eat until they joined? Again, this is unusual in the way our society works. It's, um, yeah, so, here, so here's an illustration. I've mentioned this a few times in some of my past sermons. Before I moved to Philly, I lived in Hartford, Connecticut in a house that is in the city's uh, often neglected North End neighborhood. And the house was owned by a neighborhood development nonprofit. They ran, it was really unique. They ran programs out of the basement in the first floor, and then they just had extra space. They didn't need all of it. So they rented the second and third floor apartment to a few of us who volunteered with them and lived upstairs. When we first moved in, there were three of us, three white guys in a black neighborhood. We were all full-time employed elsewhere outside of the neighborhood in ways that did or didn't overlap with what we were doing there. We had been volunteering in the community for a while, we got to know people. The three of us, one of the things we'd committed to was having weekly house nights just to be sure that we actually spent some time together. Uh, and so on one Thursday night, we were playing a game on our weekly house night. And I don't know, what, I can't remember what game it was, but it was a game where you like really needed four people and it was like, it was okay to play with three, but it just like wasn't that great. And there was a knock at the door. And it was a high school student who had been involved in some of the uh, programs that the nonprofit ran and that I'd been a little bit involved in one of my house, to both of the other housemates actually, had been really deeply involved in. And so he helped us, he, so he joined the game, we got to play, it was great. And then he moved in that night and he lived with us for the next two or three years. Turns out he was knocking on the door not because he wanted to play the game with us, but because his family had been evicted from the substandard housing they were living in and he literally like needed somewhere to sleep that night. And he lived with us for two or three years. Um, and I wanna point out like we were a pretty, um, we were we were probably a pretty awkward and sort of strict set of housemates for like a high school student to live with. So I want to point out that like this was a, a unique experience for me, but this is also a really unique experience for him. Um, and he chose to embrace in agreeing to live with us. He chose to embrace a lot of just unusual like rule, like we weren't prepared for him to bring a girlfriend over to our house. Like, and if he was going to do that, it was going to be done in a way that we felt comfortable with. And we were not his parents, but like we, that's just going to be how it was, right? And he embraced it and he went with it. Um, and so I want to respect that and acknowledge that. The experience that I had in that house, it, it continued to grow. We had seven bedrooms in the apartment. At one point, there were 10 of us, a single mother with three kids. So we ranged from like 
one to 50-something, a woman who was in the process of a divorce. It was just like this incredible collection of people that I learned an unbelievable amount. I, I wonder at having had that experience. Um, just to live daily with the perspective that each of the different people in that house brought me. Um, at the same time, I now live in a very calm household by comparison, um, much quieter um, with my wife, Gail, and, and, and our 14-month-old, Gabriel, and it's still much calmer, I promise. <laughs> um, so one way to build the kind of depth of relationship that I'm thinking about here is to intentionally find different housemates than our society expects of us to have. Of course, we had a relationship with this young man and everyone else who moved in with us over time before they moved in. Right at the point at which they made the decision to move in, we already had such a foundation of a relationship that it was that natural kind of thing that you would do for someone in your family. If someone in your family suddenly needed someone somewhere to live, you would, you would find space in your house for them, and it felt like the exact same thing. So where do we start? Well, again, I want to recognize that our society is built in ways that encourages us to only have relationships with people like us, whatever that is. So in particular, those of us who are fully employed who have, choice, have a lot of choices about whether we interact at all with people who have less economic means than us. We can literally use our resources to avoid these types of relationships. So here's a simple example. It's normal, it's, it's as normal as choosing to pay for Uber to get from here to downtown because the bus is less convenient and perhaps less comfortable. So those of us who have these choices, we need to start by intentionally putting ourselves in places, real places, where we will at least, at a bare minimum, be around people who have less economic means. Not as clients, and I know there are a lot of us who work in nonprofits, work at schools, work in, in social work, not as clients, as neighbors, as people. And I want to speak to a minute for why, at least for, for someone like myself, that can feel really uncomfortable. So here's an example. When I first moved into this apartment in Hartford, the timing was like really bizarre and kind of hilariously awkward. I, literally, the day that I moved in, everybody else who lived in the apartment left for a week. Um, partially, it was, the, it was the program that they were running. It was their like, summer camp program. So two of them went to go spend a week with all the kids, and somebody else was moving out. And so, so I move in, and I've never lived in this neighborhood. I had just barely started volunteering there for like a month. Never lived there, and I was living in this apartment literally by myself for a week. Um, and I was working from home, so I was like there by myself for a week. I felt really uncomfortable. Like, like, I felt like when I walked out the front door, everybody, I mean, for one, at that point when my two or three housemates were not in the neighborhood for the week, I was literally probably the only white guy for a mile in any direction. So I felt like people were probably, like, if I walked out the door, people would notice. One, they would notice, like, who is this guy? And two, they, they probably knew my housemates well enough to be like, who is the new guy? Like, he doesn't belong here. Like, there are only three white guys in this neighborhood, and we don't know him. Um, so, so it felt really uncomfortable. And I felt really, and like, I, I literally remember in that, in that week, like, sitting in the house thinking, like, like feeling like I was not going to go out, like, I wasn't going to just, like, go for a walk, even though it was, like, really nice out, because I just didn't feel comfortable there. And I want to acknowledge and challenge that kind of uncomfortableness that those of us who have, who, who, who have had, who have had the opportunity to make choices to avoid those the rest of the world, um, then, then feel really uncomfortable when we're in the rest of the world. And I want to challenge us to push into that uncomfort and to make choices to be a part of the world in the same way that we see this community in Acts, making intentional choices to not just be together, but to be of one heart and one mind. Living in the city, I actually think, makes this meshing easier in some ways because you can make choices like choosing to ride the subway or the bus. You can choose to shop at a store 
where people with less purchasing power go to shop. Because you can just choose that, because they're right here. And they're actually probably a better deal for you, too. But anyway, um, so if, if you live around here, you particularly, you could choose to go to a park five blocks west of the one that you usually choose to go to. Or on the flip side, you could choose to go to a park five blocks east of your normal park. And in doing so, you would probably encounter a group of people with a different set of economic resources, right? That's the reality in our neighborhood. Five blocks either direction is a, is a potentially significant change. I would encourage all of us to do these kinds of things until we can like, breathe easy and feel comfortable in spaces that are more normal for people with different resources than us than they are for us. Either way that goes for you and your experience. As that settles in, then I would challenge you to find a place where you can go deeper than just being present and really build relationships. Maybe your block is at a moment where it's actually really socioeconomically diverse, where people have different resources on the block. Maybe you can dig in and start there with actual neighbors. Maybe you can intentionally seek and find some sort of neighborhood initiative or program that you could be a part of, kind of as I had the experience in Hartford, where you could volunteer, get involved, start to meet families, and make some friends. Maybe you have kids, and I think for those of us with kids, often um, because of the time and investment that we need to spend in our kids, we feel like we don't have a lot of other time to do things like this. But I think this is actually a great opportunity because our kids haven't yet realized that, that it's unnorm unnormal, un whatever, to have these kinds of, they haven't yet socialized into the systems that the rest of us have lived in. So we should just follow our kids. Let them go make friends, and then we should become friends with the families they make friends with, and there's a great opportunity there for us. I would encourage you to go deep, not broad. Pick a small, community-focused space, thing, relationship, program, and go deep. Get to know people. Make friends. Let it take the time, like the years. Let it take the time that it might take. Finally, the third piece that I want to take from this community is the challenge to seek freedom from our possessions. This community was described as having generous hearts. Those with lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to be distributed. This is challenging to consider as we think about being faithful to Jesus' call to be generous. I think we can easily find ourselves stuck in all kinds of questions like, how nice a car should I buy? How much should I spend on entertainment, on eating out? How much should I save versus give? Those are real questions. And I, and I actually think, I think we should, we should I, I don't know if there are answers. I, I, I think the answer to those questions is to be wrestling with them potentially always. Um, I, I don't have... Like, the clear, like, I haven't ever found a clear like, line of feeling like, good about the answers to those questions um, since I started thinking about them. What I do want to talk to you this morning, I have returned often to some principles on this that I read in a book. Um, we also shared all of our books in this house, so I read a lot of great books, um, by a, a guy named Viv Grigg that one of my housemates had. He, uh, he lived and did a lot of really interesting ministry in an urban slum in Manila, and he had faced in his life, in that experience, a lot of these questions about his own material wealth and what he should or shouldn't do with this. And so he had a series of principles um, that, I want, that have been really helpful to me for a while since then that I want us to consider this morning. There are five of them. Earn much, consume little, hoard nothing, give generously, celebrate life. Earn much, consume little, hoard nothing, give generously, celebrate life. I think that phrasing really resonates with what we saw this morning with what we see in the scripture in Acts 2 and Acts 4. For those of us that want to grow in this area, I want to challenge us on a couple of particulars here to push into consuming less and hoarding nothing. Because I think if we push in those areas, growth there will free us 
to give generously, and to celebrate life. So I'm going to start with an example of, uh, of hoarding less. I, uh, as <laughs> I think this is kind of hilarious to say. Most of you probably think I'm not much of a hoarder. I'm not. I mean, if, especially if you think about like the TV show Hoarders, I've never seen it, but people used to talk about it, right? Like, hoarding on that level is like a whole other deal. But when, when I read this book and was really starting to think about these things, one thing I did, did have was a, an unbelievable number of books. I was, at a, I was at the phase in my life where you could put everything you owned in the car and move to another city, and like everything you owned fit in one car with you, right? So it's not like I had a lot of stuff, but I had a lot of books. I had, um, I had won a $300 Amazon gift card at the time when Amazon only sold books. I know that was a long time ago, so I had bought lots of books. And then I worked for a ministry organization that gave you a free book or two like every month from their publishing house. So I had, so, so the, the really amazing part was that I was, not only was I hoarding books, but I was hoarding books on Christian spirituality, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> So like I literally, I'm reading this book, and I'm looking around my room, and I have one bookshelf, and it's like overflowing. And it's overflowing with all these books that I'm never going to read again. Like that's the definition of hoarding. Stuff that you are never going to use again. Like it was, it was, um, it was shockingly obvious. So I made a commitment at that point to have only two shelves, not like two bookshelves, but two shelves on my, my bookcase had three shelves, and I needed a shelf for other things. So I made a commitment to have two shelves of books. And if I got more than that, I would give some away. And so I started by hauling a couple of boxes of 50 or 75 books to a college student event where I put them on a couple of tables and told everyone to take them home. And they did, and they, hopefully they read them and found them much more useful than they would have been sitting on my shelf. So a small example, a kind of a humorous example, but I think that's the kind of thing that sort of that catches your attention when you start to dig into things like this. So that's hoarding. Is there anything that you have a whole lot of and having that stuff is not helping you celebrate life. Maybe it would help someone else celebrate life more than you if they had it. Regardless of whether that stuff has monetary value or not, I think that's actually beside the point in this case. Being generous allows for a better celebration of life. So we should be generous. Second in this part, I want to turn our attention to consuming less. I think this can often feel more challenging or more all-encompassing in the lifestyle and the, uh, the society that we live in today. Particularly, I think we often feel a tension between the principle of consuming less and the principle of celebrating life. It can feel like if we want to be more generous, then we need to spend less on other stuff. But if we spend less, then we're going to somehow become a miserly Scrooge who never spends a dollar, doesn't have any fun, and has no friends. Like, literally, though, I, th I think that's like lurking in the background of what we think. That tension, I actually think that tension is something that was created by the advertisers of the world who want us to believe that our, the, the, our ability to celebrate and enjoy life is tied to our stuff. That is not true. That is their uh, prerogative that they get paid lots of money to convince us so that they can make more money, but it's not true. There's no connection one way or another. I mean, look, look at the scripture this morning. This scripture divides the de describes the people's hearts as glad and generous. They are not glad in spite of being generous or generous in spite of being glad. They are glad and they are generous. And so I want to challenge us to get to that space where we are glad and generous. Let me illustrate it this way. Some, uh, some people I will call my friends, they're actually my brother's friends, but I'm going to steal them. Um, they had family that worked in Costa Rica. So because of the family they had in Costa Rica, I think they were motivated. Um, they had relationships with people that made them realize the opportunity and the significance of being generous. And so they were in their mid-20s. They had just moved to D.C. They were both in their first job. They had no kids. They were living outside of D.C. Um, they noticed that they and their friends spent a lot on entertainment. 
mostly on going out to eat and mostly on the weekend, right? That's just kind of like what they did to spend time with their friends. They didn't have a lot of money. They were both in their first jobs, but they, suddenly they had a lot of discretionary money, right? What I love is that instead of, instead of deciding to be the like stick in the mud couple who just like wasn't going to go out and wasn't going to spend money and was going to like be more, like have a better budget and be more generous, they decided to be creative and figure out a way to do this in a way that would both consume less and celebrate more. So what they did is they started a monthly Saturday dinner where instead of going out to whatever restaurant was the flavor of the weekend, they invited all their friends over and they ate a simple rice and beans dinner and together they all pooled the money that they would have spent going out and they gave it to the family in Costa Rica for whatever they were doing in their community. And I, I think they actually had fun doing that because they were together and they ate a good meal and they got to talk about things that they really cared about. They consumed less and they celebrated more. That's what we need to find. I think that takes some creativity. Again, because we're used to this culture that has convinced us that consuming more is connected to being happy. Again, thanks to the advertisers and whoever else. What if we could actually better celebrate life if we consumed less of something, if we shared it in a different way, if we borrowed instead of bought? The less we consume, the freer we will be to give generously, and the more life we will celebrate. Earn much, consume little, hoard nothing, give generously, celebrate life. It's a lot to consider. I'll do a quick recap summary and then a few things to consider potentially this week. So we started this morning wanting to see Jesus. What, what does it mean? How does Jesus bring good news to the poor? We recognize the powerful and appealing model of the early followers of Jesus, the depth of their spiritual experience, the depth of the community relationships, and how much that, that calls to us, how much we desire something like that. And then we see how that community brings good news to the poor, and I think it really challenges us with the fact that good news for the poor requires our participation in an economic model that is really different from what we're used to. Good news for the poor has implications and opportunity for the community as a whole, for all of us. Good news for the poor requires oneness and generosity from everyone, a oneness and generosity that seems really radical compared to our societal norms. So how can we get started? How can we dip our toe in? Here are three potential things to consider this week. First, pick something you enjoy doing and do it somewhere that people who have different resources than you do that same thing because you'd have something in common that you actually enjoyed, right? So for some of us, that could mean, that could actually, for some of us, that could mean coming to this church, right? Some, some of us come to this church and think, wow, a lot of people here have really different resources than I do. So for some of us, that could mean coming to this church. Um, for some of us, that could mean going out to eat in a really different place than we might otherwise have picked. That could mean going to a different park, going to a library, going somewhere different than usual to do something you enjoy. Second, option two, Think about somewhere where you're already naturally running into people, like consistently, repeatedly seeing the same people who have really different resources than you. Maybe, it, maybe this happens at work. Maybe it happens on your block. Maybe it happens as you commute regularly. You find yourself walking with the same people. I think all of us in life probably, uh, unless we've like somehow reached peak friend land, all of us want to have more friends in life. So let's make the intentional choice to prioritize our next friends by, by really focusing on people who have different resources than we do, access to different resources than we do. Third, find a way to celebrate life 
that doesn't involve consuming stuff that is free. If we want to be more generous, we're going to have to be better at separating, at, at uh, decoupling, un untwining the cultural norm that we need to spend money and consume stuff in order to enjoy life. I think it sounds a lot more fun to, and, and therefore a lot more sustainable to start attacking that by finding fun, celebratory things that are non-consuming, non-consumer related, not, that are free, than by avoiding things that we have paid for in the past. Right? The positive way to do this is to find the new non-consuming creative celebratory things. So find something that you, so find something this week, next weekend, spend this week thinking about it and next weekend do something with you, with some friends, with your family that you would really enjoy doing that does not involve consuming anything. Where you don't have to purchase stuff or use up something, but where you can just like actually enjoy it. Do it, enjoy it, and celebrate life. And the better we are at that, I think the generosity will take care of itself, especially in the context of the relationships that we're also seeking. So there's your three potential, kind of dip your toe in, next steps. Pick something you enjoy doing, doing it with people you wouldn't necessarily, or around people you wouldn't necessarily do it. Think about a place where you're already running into people with really different resources than you and how you could prioritize building friendships there. Find a way to celebrate life that doesn't require consuming something or being a consumer. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask you to have mercy on us, to empower our spirits, to really resonate and desire your mission that we might, as you have said, bring good news to the poor, that we might be freed from our possessions, freed from our comfortable relationships. We hear your proclamation that you are empowered by the Spirit to bring good news to the poor, and we want to be there with you. As the prayer that you taught us reminds us, we ask you if you would give us today, all of us, our daily bread, that you would forgive us our consumerism, our hoarding, our lack of generosity, that you would free us from the temptations of security and materialism specifically, that you would deliver us from evils like this. Jesus, may we see your kingdom come. May we see your kingdom come. Amen.